Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you that we can come to you at any time and that you hear us. I thank you that you are a good dad and you love to listen to your kids as we just babble to you about all the things we're scared about and all the things that we are happy about and all the things we want and need or think we need. And you're able to sort through it all and go and give us what's best. And sometimes that's hard things so that we learn to cling to you tighter. And sometimes those are gifts so we learn to thank you more. And I just thank you that you are the best of fathers. And even the best of earthly fathers are just a glimpse at you. And I pray, Father, that we would delight together in your fatherly goodness that you have given us a book, an amazing book, the Bible. And it's to this book that we turn and we know that this Bible is all about your son. And so I pray that we would make much of your son Jesus as we look at Daniel chapter 1 together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you guys uh, didn't pick this up on your way in the door, um, I've got a handout. Um, Holly, could you pass those out? It says handout on it, I think. No, it says important connections between Joseph, Daniel, and Jesus. So this is a handout that will hopefully travel home with you and get reread at least once um, so that some of these connections that we've seen can get cemented in your brain as we continue to work through the book of Daniel. If you didn't get last week's handout, um, I'll try to have that out again. I think I have a stack of them in the uh, meeting room. Uh, last week's me uh, handout is a st the structure of the book of Daniel, like how this whole big 12-chapter book hangs together, and it's really important. Not only is the handout important, but the sermon itself, if you didn't get a chance to hear the roadmap for Daniel, have you ever driven somewhere and had not a clue where you were going? That's what this sermon series will be like if you don't listen to last week's. You'd be like, well, I don't know where he's going, but uh, <laughs> sounded good. He sounded excited. All right, so I encourage you, please. A lot of time, a lot of thought went into um, last week's trying to summarize the overview. If you can, listen to it. It's on our website. It's on Facebook. So two different ways. You can either watch the video or if you just want to hear my voice and don't want to look at me, you can uh, listen to it in your pocket. Again, it's an important roadmap so we don't get lost. It's easy to get lost in Daniel. Daniel is a tough book. Um, if you listened to it last week and you're like, man, I'd love to cement that in my mind, listen to it again. Um, so, remember, Daniel is a two-part book. Chapters 2 to 7 are the per first part, and chapters 8 to 12 are the second part. And the second part is like a running commentary on the first part. And in the first part, there's two different times we see four earthly kingdoms ending with the spiritual kingdom of Satan, that are overthrown by God's king, Jesus, and his kingdom that will never end. That kingdom that we are a part of now. And part 
8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, those chapters, are commenting on chapters 2 to 7, and they're showing, it's like a, you know, the sports commentary um, that's, you know, going with the game, talking about who's winning. Um, it, it's like a, you know, the way I was describing it to Richard and Ken Wednesday when, in our sermon discussion, you know, he's commenting on the different kingdoms, and it's like, and the Persians overthrow the Babylonians, and the Greeks overthrow the Persians, and Jesus wins, right? I mean, it's kind of this running commentary, and the theme, Jesus wins, you could, that would could be a catch-all for Daniel, or, or they don't say the name Jesus, but the Messiah, the son of Adam, who's come to save the world and to rule over it with justice and righteousness forever. So, that's the book of Daniel, and two parts with an introduction, and today we're going to be in the introduction. So, chapter 1 of the book of Daniel. You can follow along with me as I read. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, that would be the temple. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is another name for Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these youths were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So that's very important. These four men are from the tribe of Judah, the ruling tribe of Israel. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Or, my father is Nego. These are all Babylonian god names. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths, you are, the youths who are of your own age? So if I put you on this diet and you don't look so good, I'm going to lose my head because I'm supposed to make you look good for the king. You would endanger my head with the king, verse 10. Verse 11, Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables. Literally, it's let us be given seed-bearing plants. Seed, seed, vegetables that come from seeds, or plant, you know, food that comes from seeds, to eat, and water to drink. Then 
let our appearance and the appearance of the ewes who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So give this diet a 10-day trial and see the results. If the results are good, it's a good diet. If not, then we can go back. So the, the steward listened to them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. That was a good thing back then, uh, fat, fatter in flesh, than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all dreams and visions. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So that's chapter 1 of Daniel, and that is the introduction. Now, we're going to look through the introduction and see three main things in chapter 1. First, we're going to see the purpose of Daniel. The purpose of Daniel. It'll give us an idea in the first few verses of why Daniel was written. Second, we're going to look at the problem in the book of Daniel. What's the problem in Daniel? And I don't mean here that Daniel has problems or that there's issues in Daniel. No, what I mean is Daniel, the book, tells us about a problem and then gives us the solution to the problem within the book. So Daniel's purpose, Daniel's problem, and third, Daniel the person, or the person called Daniel. Daniel, the character, is, is within the book of Daniel. So the, the book is called Daniel, and the main character in the book of Daniel is Daniel. Okay, And the person, the main character, one of the main characters in the book of Daniel, he plays a really important role in the book. Hear me clearly. Daniel is intended by the author of this book who's not named, we don't know who's writing Daniel. A lot of the stuff in Daniel probably came from the writings of Daniel, but someone else took his writings and stitched it together into this book. And the author, following the Spirit of God, is intending us to see Daniel as a type or a picture of the promised Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ, the great beast-conquering son of man of Daniel 7. And Daniel is a picture of the guy coming in Daniel 7 that Daniel himself has a vision of. Daniel's life and the things that happen to him are like movie trailers getting us ready for Jesus. Okay, And it's not just through creative connections that we're forcing on the text. The authors themselves, or the author, whoever's writing Daniel, wanted us to see this and to make much of Jesus. And we'll see that at the end today hopefully so the purpose of daniel daniel right at the beginning of the book we, we see the purpose of daniel i think it was written 
to show us, here's the main purpose of Daniel, that the God of the Bible is totally in control over all earthly kings and kingdoms. And he has an unstoppable plan to install his son as the eternal king of the world. So I'll say it again. The God of the Bible is totally in control over all world rulers in every nation that's ever been or ever will be. He's totally in control over the rise and fall of kingdoms. He sets them up. He takes them down to accomplish his purposes in the world. And he will, in the book of Daniel, and we can say now, he has installed his son, Jesus Christ, as his faithful king. A man who is also God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who reigns in heaven and one day will appear again on earth to judge the living and the dead and to set up the fullness of his kingdom, which will never end. And if we bow to Jesus now, we will be a part of that kingdom, both now and forever. So that's what Daniel is all about. God sets up kings and takes them down, and one day he'll establish his king forever. That's the point of Daniel. Jesus will rule the world. Now, in Daniel chapters one to two, er, Daniel chapter one, verses one to two, we start to see right from the start of this book, God's in control of earthly kings and their kingdoms. And that theme it comes up constantly in Daniel, verses one and two. Look at this: in the third year of the reign, king's reign, in the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebi, if you want to call short, King Nebi, Nebuchadnezzar, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, the temple. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the, the vessels that were in the temple of Yahweh, the God of Israel, he put them in the house of his God. So, notice, there's two earthly kings mentioned here. You have Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Judah was the ruling tribe of God's people, Israel. God had promised, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit near the end, but God had promised many years before that the ruling tribe of Judah, there would one day come a special king from Judah's family. Listen to the words of the Lord in Genesis 49, 9-10. Genesis 49, 1 sets it up at the end of days. This is going to happen at the end of days. And then verses 9-10, to he says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? So he's describing this coming king as a lion-type figure, a mighty lion. The scepter, that's a king's staff, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until it comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So one day, all the world will obey the lion king from the tribe of Judah. And the Bible sets us up for this expectation so Judah in the Bible story is really, really important. Jesus was from the land of Judah. 
But here we see that the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, is conquered by another king, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And in verse 2, we see that it's actually Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, who gives Judah's king, Jehoiakim, into the hands of the Babylonians. So the defeat of the tribe of Judah here is God's plan. God takes down kings and he sets kings up. He doesn't play favorites, not even with his own people, not even with the tribe that's eventually going to bring us Jesus. No, God can use an evil nation like Babylon to punish his own people here for their rebellion against him. And God sets up kings like Nebuchadnezzar in this story. And we will find out that God can take them down as well and humble them and their terrible pride. We read about, about that in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Daniel. God is the God who can give one kingdom into the hand of another king. He allows in this book of Daniel, he allows the Medes and the Persians to conquer the Babylonians as judgment on the pride of Nebuchadnezzar's son. God is sovereign over the rise and fall of kings until the day that has now come for you and I, that Jesus has been installed as God's forever king. And he will come, as we I already said, one day he will appear again as king to judge the living and the dead and to bring about his kingdom which will have no end. And we are a part of that already, even as we wait the not yet of that day. So, God sets up kings and takes down kings. Man, just pause for a minute. We don't have a king in America, but we have political leaders. We are a part of a kingdom as Christians that can never be shaken. Our king is on, on heaven's throne and he is never up for re-election. That is comforting to me. No political leader, no one on the judicial bench of our nation can ultimately give the rest for my soul and your soul that Jesus Christ gives by his spirit and by his word. Jesus is king. Let the nations rejoice and tremble before him. So, whatever happens in November and in the days to come for America, remember, we are one of almost 200 nations on this planet. And over them all stands King Jesus. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, all kingdoms, all peoples are to bow before the risen Lord Jesus. And what's the laws in his kingdom? Love me with your everything and love your neighbor as yourself. That's our kingdom that we are a part of. We are citizens of a different realm. We march to the beat of the new creation. We are not first and foremost Americans. We are first and foremost saints of the living God who are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is our comfort. This is the 
comfort of the book of Daniel. And it confronts us, especially at election time, but all times, I feel like. And so it brings us comfort. And we will get lots more comfort in the book of Daniel, especially as you get to chapter 7. Now, let's move to the second point this morning, the problem in Daniel. In the very beginning of Daniel, chapter 1, we see there's a big problem. We've seen it already for the people of God, for Israel, and for, for the tribe of Judah. And here's the big problem. Their temple, the place where they were to meet God, has been destroyed. Their capital city, Jerusalem, has been sacked. And many of their people, not just any of their people, but the best and the brightest of their people, have been carried off into exile. Now, to be, you know what an exile is? To be in exile it means you are away from your homeland. You're brought outside and locked up, and you wish you could go home, but you can't. For the people of Israel, the land of Canaan was supposed to be their special homeland, to be a land flowing with milk and honey, as the biblical authors would say. It was the land in which they were to live and multiply and enjoy God's blessing. Just like God said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, be fruitful and multiply, and he blessed them, and he gave them dominion over everything in Eden and told them to fill the earth and subdue it for his fame and his praise. So Israel, in the promised land, were blessed by God, and they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. And from that land, reflect the glory of God to the ends of the earth. The garden, er, the land of Canaan was like a mini do-over of the Garden of Eden. In fact, in the story of the Bible, this is really important for understanding the Old Testament. The whole nation of Israel, God's people, they are actually cast for us, pictured as a new Adam. One guy, let, one guy messed up in the garden. Let's see how a whole nation does. They're like a, a new Adam, and they are put in a new Eden, a promised land, where they are to be faithful and obey God's word if they want to live long in that land. They're not to break God's word like Adam the first did. And God promised that if they keep his word faithfully, they will find blessing in their little piece of Eden, in their promised land. But if you know anything about the biblical story, even from today, you know that didn't go very well for Israel. No? Remember, in the story of Genesis, the Bible just repeats its theme over and over. In the story of Genesis, Adam has to leave Eden in Genesis 3, which we'll read next week, because of their sin and their unbelief. They didn't trust God and let him define for them what was good and evil. They said, no, our way, just like Israel. And Adam had to leave Eden. And in Genesis 11, his family ends in Babylon, where they rebel against God. And they lifted, they're lifted up in pride in Genesis 11, building a tower up to the skies to be great. And God humbles their pride. All right? Now, here you see Israel lifted up in pride and... They think they can define good and evil for themselves, and in the book of Daniel we see what happens. They are brought to Babylon, where God will humble their pride. 
Israel is carried out of the promised land and they're exiled in Babylon. Genesis 1 to 11 happens again. Now, listen to the warning of Moses about this at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Moses says, before Israel has been kicked out of the land, Moses gives them this warning. Their leader gives them a warning. Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 20. Well, I'll just read 15 to 18. He says, See, I have set before you today life and death, good and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving Yahweh your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you. Remember, this is at the end of the, the first five books of the Bible. Hear those echoes of Genesis 1 there. Be fruitful, multiply. God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. You'll be like a new Adam, flourishing in a new Eden if you obey God's words. God says, I'm setting before you life and blessing, death and evil. What did God set before Adam? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Don't eat from this fruit or you will surely die. Eat from the tree of life. Life and blessing, good and evil. God says, If your hearts turn away, and you will not hear, but you are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely die. Where have we heard that before? Deuteronomy 30, here he's reading this. Genesis 1. If you disobey, you will surely die. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. So just like Adam, Israel chose death. That is what rejecting God is, friends. Rejecting God in life is choosing death forever. When you break the words of the God who literally spoke you into existence, we are choosing death for ourselves. That's what exile means. Exile is life outside of God's presence outside of Eden. It's what hell is in the biblical vision. Hell is the final exile. It's where you go in death if you've chosen not to follow God in life. It's a living death outside of the new creation. And you don't want to go there. Trust me. Hell is the final exile from which there is no return. And Jesus came to rescue us from that. So because of the sins and failures of Israel as a nation, they are in a physical exile. They are in Babylon. And what do they need? Well, they need to have their hearts and their sin problem fixed. The problem that got them into exile in the first place was sin. And they need a new king because Jehoiakim, their king from the line of Judah, he wasn't much of a lion king. He was a lame loser and a rebel against the Lord. He was part of the problem. He was the reason that they were in exile. 
along with their own sins. They needed a new king. They needed a faithful king. They needed a wise king who was filled with God's spirit and God's wisdom and obeyed God's word perfectly. They needed a ruler who would triumph over the craftly, crafty wiles of the devil, a ruler who would not submit to Babylon. In fact, they would need a ruler who would defeat Babylon and to whom Babylon and all other nations of the earth would bow. Ultimately, Israel in exile, they need the lion of the tribe of Judah who will appear at the end of days to deal with their sin problem by forgiving their sins and to be their king, to be like a new Adam who's going to fix things so that they can stay in God's new creation forever. So, the exile of Israel can only be ended by a faithful son of Adam, a new Adam who will come from the tribe of Judah to be a faithful king. This is the vision of the Bible. Jesus is the last Adam, and the last Adam will end our exile and lead us home. Now, here's where we're going to get back into Daniel here. In the story of the Bible, there are multiple new Adam-like characters who come along in the story and they give us little glimpses at what Jesus will look like and what he will be and do when he comes. And I've used this illustration a lot of times. I think it helps me, it, and I hope it helps you, okay? Jesus, uh, these men, they are like little movie trailers getting you ready for the coming of the big production, okay? These guys are like little snippets of what's going to happen that raises your expectations and your hopes for Jesus along the way. Now, most of these men... At the end of their lives, they give us a snippet, a snippet of Jesus for a little while, but then they, like King David, for example, but their lives end up like train wrecks in the end. King David fell into sin and ended up needing God's forgiveness. But there are two men in the biblical story who are intended to be movie trailers of Jesus who never end in shame. Those two men, we've covered one of them from the pulpit, that is Joseph, in the biblical story of Genesis, verse, chapters 37 to the end. And the other man, no surprise, is Daniel. Joseph and Daniel. And so that is the next section here and the last point today, the person called Daniel. In the book of Daniel, the character who is named Daniel, is intended by the author to be seen as a new Joseph. And because he's a new Joseph, he's also a picture of Jesus for us, because that's what Joseph was supposed to be in Genesis. So in other words, let's say it again, different way, maybe try to make it even clearer. Uh, the author of Daniel has chosen to make it really clear to us in the Daniel story, that the life of Daniel and the things that happened to him are a foreshadowing or a picture or of a movie trailer of what's going to happen to Jesus the Messiah. And the way he does it is by comparing Daniel's life, making sure we see the connections between Daniel and the first guy to do that, Joseph. 
So, let's dive right in. We'll look at the ways that Daniel is like Joseph. The story of Joseph in the Bible, if you've never read it, can be found in Genesis 37 to 50. I'd encourage you to read it this week if it would be new to you. But if it's familiar, um, you'll be able to track probably a little better with this. But I'll just point out the similarities, and if you go back and read it for the first time, hopefully you'll see some of these similarities. First, both Joseph and Daniel, these characters in the biblical story, they are seen to have wisdom and discernment that comes from the Lord. You can look at that in your handout. The references are there. They both have wisdom and discernment from God. Both Daniel and Joseph are described as good-looking. Both Daniel and Joseph receive new names from the foreign kings they serve. Joseph serves Pharaoh, Daniel serves Nebuchadnezzar, and then Darius. Both Daniel and Joseph are shown compassion or favor in the presence of their overseer appointed by the king to look after them. Both Daniel and Joseph are said to interpret dreams. This would be probably one of the easiest connections that you might see. Daniel and Joseph both interpret dreams for world rulers. That's obviously a, a pretty big similarity. And both of them are said to interpret those dreams, the kings, when their minds are blown at these amazing interpretations of the dreams predicting future events, that only God could know, they say, in these men are the spirits of the gods, or it's the spirit of the gods, plural. Now, the authors of Genesis and Daniel, they record these stories because they understand that the spirit of the gods that these pagan kings are talking about is, is God's spirit, none other than the spirit of the living God. So these are spirit-filled wise men interpreting dreams for kings and being exalted to the place of rulership. In Daniel 6, here's another connection. Daniel is thrown into a lion's den, or literally a pit with lions, because of his refusal to be unfaithful to the Lord. You ever heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den? We're going to preach that in a few weeks. Man, I'm excited. Just like Daniel was thrown into a den of lions, every time you see the word den, you can cross out and put pit. Same word. The pit. The lion pit. They kept him in a pit. And just like Daniel was thrown into a pit because of his faithfulness to the Lord, so Joseph is thrown into a pit in Genesis. First, by his brothers. When they're trying to kill him, they throw him into a pit, a cistern, a pit. And then... He's thrown into a pit in Egypt. That's what they call the prison, interestingly, a pit. And Pharaoh takes him out of the pit because he interprets dreams. And both men, when they are appointed to rule over the world by these kings, like here you rule for me, you can be second or third in command, they're given royal clothes, royal robes. All right, so we covered a lot of them. Maybe you'll remember a couple. The dreams one is easy to remember. Being thrown into a pit. That should be easy to remember. Those are two of the big ones. Ruling the world on behalf of a king. Th those are big ones as well. All right? But the most important similarity, the one that gets us, really gets us to Jesus, is the one I haven't pointed out yet. In the story of the Bible, the author of Genesis, in the beginning of the Bible, he wants us to view what happens to Joseph as a foreshadowing or a picture 
of what will happen to the Messiah, the coming Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus. And there's one really key connection that the author of Genesis makes that you need to try to remember, because this is really important for the biblical story. In Genesis 37, Joseph is rejected by his brothers for having a dream that his whole family will bow down to him. And they throw him in a pit and they sell him as a slave. But in Genesis 43:28, when Joseph is raised out of the pit after his humiliation, he's raised out of the pit and he's exalted to rule over Egypt. The tables are turned and his brothers come and they don't recognize him and they all bow down to him. And later his father does as well. In Genesis 49, verses 1 to 10, I read it earlier, we read that at the end of days, that's the code word in the Bible for the days of Jesus, Joseph's older brother Judah would have a son. So Joseph's older brother Judah, who actually saved Joseph's life in the pit, interestingly, Judah would have a son who would rule the world, and all nations would including Judah's brothers, the 12 tribes, would bow before this lion king from the tribe of Judah. So when you see in the biblical story Joseph and how amazing and righteous he is, filled with wisdom, filled with the Spirit of God, ruling over the world on behalf of Pharaoh, and ruling in a way that brings life to people, There was a famine coming, and he stored up food, and people lived and didn't die because of his wisdom. And when you see that Joseph is lowered to a pit and then exalted, this is all intended by the author to make us think of the son of Judah who's coming, before whom all the world will bow. The Lion King. Joseph is a picture of the son of Judah who's going to rise at the end of days to rule the world. And because of the connection between bowing, other connections are encouraged as well. This Lion King of Judah will be humbled to the grave before he is exalted to rule, just like Jesus. And we could go on and on, filled with the Spirit, filled with wisdom, like Adam should have been. But he became a fool by disobeying God. Just like Joseph was faithful, so the Lion King from the tribe of Judah, will be faithful. Now, let's get to Daniel. Joseph pictures Jesus. Daniel is from the tribe of Judah. This is the line from which the kings of the nation were to come, and eventually the line from which Jesus would come. And in Daniel chapter 1, we've already read that Judah had a king, Jehoiakim, who was a loser, a terrible king, and he was exiled for his evil. But in Daniel chapter... So we need a better king, because Judah's sons are failing, and everybody's in exile. We need a king that's going to rule like Joseph. We need a good king. And, And now we see Daniel, interestingly, hauled off into exile... But he's faithful to the Lord, and in chapter 2, verse 46, after he interprets a dream for the king, a dream about a rock from heaven that comes and defeats all the nations of the world, a rock that's a picture of Jesus, we find, 
After Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar all this in chapter 2, verse 46, this is so important. Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and literally worshipped Daniel. And he commanded that an offering of incense be offered up to him. Now remember, this is a pagan king in Babylon, and just because Nebuchadnezzar worships Daniel and offers a sacrifice to him doesn't mean that the Hebrew authors of the Bible and God himself thinks that you should worship and offer sacrifices to Daniel. Again, this is a picture of someone else. In Daniel 2, verse 46, you see that the greatest king of the world the king of the kingdom of Babylon is worshiping a man from the tribe of Judah and sacrificing to him. That should be like, ding, 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 if you're reading the Bible the way the biblical authors want you to read the Bible. You should be thinking Genesis 49.10. Is this the end of days? Is the lion king from Judah here? Here you've got a pagan king bowing and worshiping him. What's going on? Is he going to bring about the end of our exile? No, he's not the one. He's not the one, but he's a picture of the one. Daniel pictures the one who's coming. The Son of Man, who we read about in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Listen to this. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of Adam, Son of man, same word. And he came, so this is a last Adam coming, an Adam do-over. Joseph was just a picture. Daniel's just a picture. And Daniel has a vision of the real one. The son of Adam comes, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Remember Jesus when he ascended from the grave after his pit experience? He ascends the clouds into heaven. Daniel, many years before, is having a vision of this. He says he comes with the clouds, and he's coming into the throne room of the Ancient of Days in heaven. He's presented before him, and to him, to this one, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve and worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Nebuchadnezzar bows before Daniel in chapter 2, he's picturing what's going to happen when the Lion King rises from the tribe of Judah, Jesus, to whom all the earth will bow. So Daniel pictures Jesus for us. Now, I want to I mention one other thing. Um, what's with the whole vegetable thing? Like, should we be eating only vegetables? Is that like, I think there's even a book called The Daniel Diet or The Daniel Fast or something. Like, um, Now, I know some of you, you don't like vegetables. So if this is what God's Word uh, wants for us, you know, you're wondering if a Snickers bar counts as a vegetable. Um, no. Carl says no. Yes, vegetables are very good for you. Um, what's going on here? Okay, well, first off, God has food laws for his people in the Old Testament to eat. Anything in the, in the Old Testament that was connected with death, disease, decay, the dust that was cursed, so like creepy crawlies that crawl in the dust, is forbidden. 
until Jesus defeats Satan and reverses the curse and proclaims all food clean. All right, so that's a different story for another day. You can listen to my sermon series in Leviticus uh, a few years, reaching way back. Um, so that's the food laws. The Jews were not to eat anything associated with the curse and with Satan and his kingdom. And so here you have Daniel being faithful. He's not going to eat the food of Babylon, which assuredly would have not have been kosher food. Okay? He's not going to bow. He's going to be faithful with food. In the Garden of Eden, who was not faithful with food? Adam. Adam was unfaithful with a choice about food, to honor God or not. And Adam chose to rebel. Okay? Daniel eats vegetables with his friends. Literally, the word is seed-bearing plants. In Eden, God gave Adam every seed-bearing plant. So what's going on to, to eat for food, except the tree and the knowledge of good and evil? What's going on in Daniel? Daniel is being cast as a new and faithful Adam, as a picture of Jesus, as a picture of Joseph, who pictures Jesus. And Daniel is faithful, faithful to the Lord in the midst of Babylon. And he's not the one. Jesus is the one. But he's, he is, as you read your Bible, Daniel, as you read this story, is to get our hopes up for the coming of Jesus. And as Christians, this Jesus has come. And he is our king. And so here is the question that we must wrestle with. Nebuchadnezzar bowed to Daniel as a picture of what everyone under every kingdom of the world will one day do to the risen Lord Jesus. And so the question for us is, will we bow to Jesus like Joseph's brothers bowed to him? And like King Nebuchadnezzar bowed to Daniel, will you bow? And I'm not talking about just your needs, but your whole entire life. Everything that you are. All of you. It's one thing to know that Jesus is the king. Many, many millions of people know in their heads there is a God. And he has appointed a man to rule the world and judge the living and the dead, Jesus but knowing Jesus is the king and actually having him as your king are two completely different things. And my challenge to you from the book of Daniel is to bow your whole life before King Jesus and offer your life as a living sacrifice, as Romans chapter 12 encourages us to do, to King Jesus. Jesus must be king over our thoughts. Paul talks about taking, in the New Testament, talks about taking every thought captive to Christ. It's like every single thought in my mind, I want to bring it under the lordship of the king. This is a daily battle which we have the Spirit's help for. Every lustful thought, every greedy thought, every angry thought against humans that we want to hurt. Every thought captive to the king, Jesus. Jesus demands that he be our king. There is no other. 
over our attitudes, over our relationship choices, over our sexuality. He must be king over how we spend our money and how we keep our money. He must be king over how we parent our children. Are we reflecting the goodness of the Father in the way that we parent? Or are we treating our children in subhuman ways that come not from the Father but from the evil one? He must be king over how we work. Work with all your might to show his honor and his fame and over how we play. Is it our entertainment, honoring to him, enjoying the gifts he's given or abusing them and ignoring the guidelines that he has set up for our flourishing? God wants us to enjoy life in the new creation. And he has shown us the way and it comes with trust and obedience to him as king. We must trust him enough to completely obey him in every area of our lives. If Jesus is not the Lord of all in your life, then he is not your Lord at all. You are worshiping a false Jesus, a Jesus who is an ATM that gives handouts for your advancement and kingdom. Jesus wants us to flourish, but his way. He wants to be our king because he is the king and the Lord of all, and he loves us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Jesus, and I pray that you would help all of us in the daily battle to worship you as king. Lord, if we are holding anything back, I pray that we would completely surrender to your lordship. I pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done in our hearts, just as it is right now in heaven. And I pray, Lord, that we would live our lives in such a way that it is plain to the world who our king is. And I pray this in the name of our precious king, Jesus. Amen.